1: everyone. It's Megan. And I am without Sarah today because I'm bringing you another special bonus episode, bonus episode nine, which is an interview with Erin Lochner. Erin is an old time blogger. She is the voice behind designformankind.com. Erin and I go way back as bloggers, but she's also got a new book out called Chasing Slow. And in this interview, Erin and I kind of talk about her journey from really chasing after um, success and other things via her blog and her online and her online work and and just in life in general, and then kind of taking a complete 80 and going in the other direction and then how she kind of maybe found her way back toward the middle a little bit. Um, It's a great interview. Erin is so warm and has so much insight and um, such smart things to say about life and motherhood and just pursuing what really matters. I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. That's from fromourplace.com, O-U-R code MOMHOUR. Hi, Erin. I am so thrilled to have you on the show. Megan,
2: I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you
1: are so very welcome. So um, the funny thing is Erin and I have been online friends for a long time. I don't even forever. remember how yeah forever we go way, we go back to the early days of blogging which now feels like forever and <laughs> we just sort of fell out of touch because I think two things were going on and Aaron you can speak to this first of all things get crazy and there's so much noise you lose track of people there's yep. that and yep. then sometimes people consciously decide to take a big step out of the picture and that was you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> In this case, yes, you made a very
1: conscious choice. And I remember we were on an email list together, a small email list. And I clearly remember you saying you were going to slow down. I think you were deciding to either not get on Facebook or to go off Facebook. So talk about that a little bit. Because this was like four. I want to say B was a baby. So this was like four years ago.
2: She was. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even realize how intentional that decision was now that I'm thinking back there. I think, uh, you know, first baby, that overwhelmed and and they just they kind of laser focused your priorities and here's the thing she was a hard baby so yeah. I felt like it took all of my brain space and energy to learn how to parent her that I just didn't have any leftover so yeah I just put my blinders on and got to work at home so I did I quit Facebook I thought you know I thought it'd be temporary but
0: I <laughs> just kind of liked it year and a half
2: years. It's been four, yes. I did, I loved it. And I'm elsewhere online. It's not as if um you I'm not which completely. I I could do too. I could totally be a hermit off in the mountains, you know, whatever. I just I think I'm a big believer in being a hundred percent where I am there at the time. Yeah. And I just couldn't do that with um with that darn baby who's now yeah. a, a kid.
1: Well, and you know, and I don't want to make it sound like you're not you know, people can't find you on Facebook, um, design for mankind. Your blog is on Facebook. Um, so you can, you can connect with Aaron there, but you decided, you know, not to have a personal account. And the funny thing is, as we were just, you were just talking about that. I remember I wasn't even in this house when we had that conversation. I remember very clearly sitting at my computer in my office in my old house, um, chatting with with you and a couple other women about these decisions we were making about like taking a step back and you were very like I think that's become a thing now the slow blogging thing but you were one of the very first I knew who actually did it so can you talk about that how you went from let's let's also set the stage here because this was a time when you know maybe like 2000 what 12 Yes, things were really heating up like Pinterest, like blogging had exploded in the years just prior. We were getting big gigs with big brands. Um, Pinterest was exploding. So er, there was suddenly was all this pressure to have not just to write well, but to have beautiful photos and to have them all designed and text overlays and to keep up with trends. And there was all this stuff going on. And then at the same time, there was all this pressure to keep up with all this other social media. It was kind of the idea then was you have to be everywhere doing everything and posting daily. I remember that was like, you know, if you're not, if you don't have enough traffic post more, that was (laughs) always the solution. And you took a very conscious backseat to that or took a, ch- a choice to go in a different direction so can you because was that sort of the beginning of that for you when you slowed down your writing oh, yeah focused yes. on quality okay so now that I've yes. painted that picture tell us where you were then and how you kind of got what's happened to you since then I'm catching up
2: <laughs> oh my gosh I know this is this is hilarious so um yeah I I think I just it was one of those enough is enough things. I was so even as a consumer of that content, even you know, you kind of follow blogs within your industry to see what everybody else is doing and I was even overwhelmed consuming that information and not not just creating it. You know, it's I think it's one thing at the time I was um, doing the HGTV.com show, yes. and so there was creating content there, and then there was creating content from my blog. I had just launched um, Design for Many Kind, like a blog for for motherhood and design, and um, everything was kind of under this umbrella of design. And I feel like, yes, certainly that's where my passion was. That's where I had been blogging for ten years, but. I just felt myself evolving as a person and kind of planning my feet offline into just being Aaron, not being Aaron, yeah. the designer, not being um, Aaron, the new mom, but just, just being legit, like a real person. Right. And yeah. I think too, um, we were so used to keeping up this pace. Um, I don't know, but you, design blogging was a little different in that, we were used to posting five to seven posts a day okay. and then uh, because not all content was original. There was a lot of curation. There was a lot of roundups and products to buy and it was very aesthetic. So it wasn't necessarily all copy writing content driven. Um, so it was like, I can't possibly do more than five to seven posts a day. That's about my max, which is quite enough. So I felt as a c- consumer and a creator all around. I was just tired. My ears were tired. I was tired of listening. I was tired of the noise. I was tired of the Pinterest fire hose of pretty, um, and yeah, I just kind of bowed out a little bit. I kind of just um, maybe out of uh, sheer sanity, just yeah. just put up a post one day that said. Um, Hey guys, I'm taking myself out of the game here. <laughs> yeah. I am going to blog. When I want to blog, I'm going to go back to the days of 2005 when you wrote on your Zynga page all angsty <laughs> and you know whatever yeah. you felt like. And there's no editorial calendar, there's going to be no strategy. I'm I'm completely 100% done with this. And there was of course a fear that okay, well, you worked so hard to be taken seriously as a blogger and now you're deciding whatever. I don't want this to be like the, 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 the business of my that life. I had yeah. to um, But I think it was also just a realization that, you know, people aren't brands. We try to make ourselves into brands and we're not brands. We're not machines. We're humans. So we got to kind of step out when we need to and, and, and stop playing the robot role, right? We're yeah. not robot partners.
1: Well, and that, and, you know, it's that it was very. That was very forward thinking at the time and brave of you to do because it, if it's your livelihood, and as I recall, weren't you and your husband working together on your blog at that point in some way? Yeah. Yes. of our livelihoods. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, so there is this feeling like, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like ride it out to the bitter end, <laughs> milk yeah. every last opportunity out of it. and. I know that you really inspired me. It was like maybe a year or two later that I decided to shut my blog down on um, The Happiest Home. And that was a really hard decision, both because I knew people loved it, but also because it was sort of, it was still doing okay. It wasn't like it was failing and I needed to bail. I, there were still yeah. plenty of opportunities. I just felt like I'd said everything in that medium that I wanted to say enough to keep it open. Like I could have kept it open and people said, well, just keep it open and just you know post whenever you want. And I kind of knew myself, like I knew as soon as I said I gave myself permission to do that. I'd probably just stop. And that is kind of what I did. I gave myself like almost a whole year just to blog whenever I felt like it. And it turns out I just never really felt like it because I moved into other yeah. stuff. Um, yeah. But what, what was funny is it's not like the world didn't end. People didn't forget I existed. Um, you know, it's funny. I think about you a lot, even though we haven't really commu- like communicated or connected in a while. I still know you're out there. I still see your work like people are still aware of each other and. And I didn't stop getting work. That was the other... It, it changed a little bit. And the kinds of stuff I do now is are different. But it's not like everyone forgot who I was. I was blackballed and went broke. And now, you know, we're living in a cardboard box. It really didn't look mm-hmm. anything like that. So I wonder what your experience was like that. Were the brands that you worked with and that were people just confused at first and didn't know what to make of it? Or was there panic?
2: I don't know. You know, and I, don't, I just really kind of reserved... To care too. I think it was. Um, I I stopped looking at stats. I stopped seeing what people were interested in, and I just kind of wrote from the heart. And it's funny. About two years, two and a half years after that post, um, that post that I wrote, where I was kind of like, "All right, I'm going to do what I call slow blogging." Yeah, I remember that. We going, should link to it because um, it was great. Yes, it went um, viral, and the New York Times called about two and a half oh, years later. Okay, and wow. they were like. And they're like, I think there's a story here, because we're noticing that, um, especially with design bloggers, people are kind of just exhausting themselves, running ragged, and they're quitting. And I have always, for one, been a huge advocate of quitting. I am, yeah, yeah, (laughs) if it's not working, move on, do it. And um, life's too short, right? So I was happy to talk about that. And I feel like um, the interesting thing, I yes, there was a fear that, okay, um, if I don't play the game I will a seem ungrateful for this platform yeah. because what an opportunity and what a gift, right. To, to be able to do what you love every day that like, I have never once wanted to take that for granted. Um, I think it was a question of kind of shaping it into a more sustainable path for me. And that sustainable path was, uh, putting myself first at that time and, and learning how to be a mom Yeah, and, um, kind of putting everything on hold. So after sharing that, um, with the New York times. And after kind of, it, it, it's funny to be known for that article. Cause you're kind of, you're known for the blogger that says you should quit your job if, right. <laughs> if you're not happy. But, um, it, it was interesting. I feel like the clients and the sponsors and the advertisers that, um, that have stuck around have stuck around because my following, uh, and my audience, they became even more loyal. It became yeah. even better. You know, they, they were tired too, they mm-hmm. they didn't want uh, burnout bloggers posting just for the sake of posting. They came for the heart and for uh, the passion, and you can tell when that's gone. You can tell when it's been squeezed out. So I I think it's important to find a way to bring that passion back to it. And if it's gone, it's gone. But yeah, it's okay. It's okay to take a break too. I feel like I had my break and and now probably gosh for two, three, four years, I've really loved it again. I've loved just blogging, you know, once a week, I check in every now and then I I couldn't love it more.
1: That's great. Well, and I think it is. It's like hitting the reset button and asking yourself, what am I doing this for getting back to that, as well as like focusing on quality over quantity. And I and I think that unfortunately, it kind of went the other direction for a lot of us around that time because Mm -hmm. of all the pressure and looking around and seeing what everyone else was doing so so let's get caught up now here we are so we started like four years ago now four years later you are back to blogging you've got a book out um chasing slow and I want to talk about that in a minute you just adopted a baby yes so so what great timing you've got all these things going on um Tell us about the book. Like, how long was this book in progress? What do you? I mean, I know kind of a, a general about what it's about, but for the listener, um, just tell us like the synopsis of your book.
2: Totally. Well, here's what's funny: the book that I set out to write was not the book that I wrote. Right? That's uh, how it works. Yeah. I thought I was going to write this, you know, slow living manifesto, and how slow living is the best way to live, and it's the only way to live, and everybody needs to just calm down, and. It it started that way, and then what happened was, so I had a completely self imposed six month deadline to write the book. Oh, okay, that was a ridiculous time frame for me. I thought, you know, I love writing. I write every single day because I do. I write every morning at four thirty a.m. Whether I publish or not, I'm gonna. I'm just out there. It's like therapy for me. I'm writing. So I thought, oh, I could, I could knock out this many words. I have so much to say. I can totally do it. And then, and then. I think I failed to factor in like the emotional aspect of writing a book, kind of the rawness and the pouring and the vulnerability of it all. And so I felt like I spent that season writing a book about living slow while I was living very fast. Mm -hmm. It was takeout for dinner all the time. I had a short fuse. I was stressed out. And um, so it was one of those it made the book so much better because there was so much tension, right? Yeah.
1: Some dissonance. You're like, what's happening? <laughs> yeah.
2: Yes. It was so much better. And what I learned was, you know, slow living, you can chase slow just as fast as you can chase fast living, right? It's, yes. not, it's not one or the other. It's about surrendering the metric altogether. It's about refusing to curate your life and, and instead actually live your life and take it for what it is. And, not, um, I feel like sometimes we, especially, you know, there's so much information available to us and there's so much inspiration available to us. And we think that our, our happy life is just one small change away or maybe one big change away. And that there's something better around the bend. And there is sometimes, right. There are some changes that we make in our life that are life-giving and they lead to an insane amount of happiness, but you're still you on the other side of right. that change, yeah. right? You're still the same person. And that's what I had a hard time wrestling with was, gosh, I've made all of these changes. I, I am completely a hundred percent living in line with my values. Why am I not perfect and right. happy and all together? And, um, and the fact is, it's that that's that's a choice to uh, you. Got to you got to rework that every single day. You have to recommit to happiness every day and recommit to joy. And um, that is something that I didn't realize. <laughs> so, yeah, I would say the book is is less about. Um, the right way to live slow and more about, um, forcing yourself to reassess your life, setting priorities, learning what matters for you, Mm. being okay with sucking at it for a really long time, being okay with the failures and the learning and the relearning and the relearning. That's really what it's about.
1: So I loved the, what you said about surrendering the metric that I've not heard it put that way before. Is that what you said? Surrendering the Mm -hmm. metric. Um, yeah. But it's so true because we seem, well, I don't know if this is a uniquely American trait or what, but we seem to see things in very all or nothing, um, you know, black or white, all or nothing ways. Yes. And so it's like either you are a hot mess because you're running around like a crazy person and your kids are overscheduled and you're overscheduled and you have no time for anything or you're like this serene Zen person who's never checks out on her phone and always is present for her kids, and that's not real on either Uh -uh. side, and it's not real for anyone who has real life responsibilities of any sort. You know, it's just not real,
2: and it's not, and we have labels for them all, right? You're either a helicopter mom or a tiger mom, or you're, um, you are slow living. Advocate or whatever. And I almost feel like part of the issue is we have completely flattened our identities online, right? We have made ourselves so two dimensional that the only way that we can describe ourselves is in you know, 140 characters or less. Yeah. Right. We have to have. It's like these. we're an avatar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It is the most bizarre thing. And I, so I feel like really the bulk of part three of the book is about embracing those contradictions in ourselves and about letting ourselves be complete hypocrites because everybody is. Right. Everybody's a hypocrite. And we can't just continue to label ourselves and to, um, you know, flatten ourselves into these boxes and assume that we're going to live accordingly 100% of the time.
1: Yeah, and, and one thing that I, uh, you know, and I do agree that um, I also love what you said that about life is not about curation, which I'll get back to in a minute, or I'd like to, us to get back to in a minute. But certain people identify, or I guess, live better in certain social platforms and certain online platforms, um, where they really feel like they can be themselves in that platform, and then some don't work that way. And it's it's funny, like, I have a real frustration with Facebook because it doesn't feel like me, even though I kind of feel like I have to be there because my aunts are all there and my family is there and everyone I know from high school is there and all my you know, work yes. relations are there. It's never quite felt like me. Um, and I don't, you know, it's, it's interesting how we try to shoehorn ourselves into something like that, that doesn't really serve us. And the pressure yeah. to do that, and I—I I don't know if it is maybe the flattening, like you said. I think for me, it's everyone has to have an opinion about everything, and like, and then the thread just keeps going forever, and you can never move on. That's the two things about Facebook that, like, <laughs> really just don't work for me. Um, whereas I loved Twitter when Twitter was big. I loved it because it I was. I love it too. Do you still? Do you still use Twitter? Oh, yeah. I never do because I feel like when I do, I'll I'll engage with you on Twitter and then we can talk. But I felt like on Twitter, it was more forgiving somehow. It was like you would just something might blow up or you might share something funny and then you move on and everyone just kind (laughs) of it's not like people are holding grudges. I don't know. It just felt like the better platform to me. And it's funny. I mean, they're both just social media networks. It really shouldn't be that different, but it always felt different to me like Instagram also feels like a happy place to me um yeah you know so I don't even know what that has is apropos of nothing but it was just thinking of that when you know you you pick and choose
2: yes yes and I think it's too it's it's funny because um I think you have to kind of resist defining your relationship with every single platform too you know it's it's one of those I'm a deeply private person so in reality my Job does not align with that at all in any shape or form. I right. would I would completely be the hermit in the mountains. <laughs> yeah. Um. But but I also find such joy in it at times. And so I so I feel like for a long time I wrestled with, oh my gosh, I I don't belong here as a blogger. I don't I don't want to share what I have for lunch. I want that to be sacred. I want it for me. I'm so much. Right. I don't share my kids' faces online. I don't share their real names online. I'm so protective of my own life and I'm not a natural I'm just not naturally great at sharing. So it I think for a long time I really was like, that means I'm in the wrong job. But no, that just means you define how that works for you. Because the fact is I get so much joy from the challenge of it. I really do. And I'm a better person for my readers. I'm a better person from, from sharing a little bit and learning from a lot.
1: Haya manufactures their vitamins right here in the USA with globally sourced ingredients, and then they ship their chewable vitamins directly to your door on a pediatrician recommended schedule. We've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. You're going to get 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, go to HayaHealth.com slash momhour. This deal is not available on their regular website. Go to hiyahealt slash momhour and get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults,
2: so it it's just one of those. There's a fine line between uh, knowing yourself and challenging yourself, and and I think changing your life and letting life change you.
1: Oh, yeah, that's great. You know, yes, like knowing yourself, but you doesn't mean you have to um, dig your heels in too hard. You can still yeah. allow yourself to kind of go with the flow and maybe learn a little bit and change a little bit. Yeah. Um, you taught you mentioned earlier not curating. I think you said don't you know, get away from curating your life, but to live your life. And I would love to hear more about that because that is such a buzzword. Curate, Uh, curate, curate experiences and lifestyle and content and everything else. So where did that come from and what does that mean for you?
2: Well, here's the thing. So if we want to talk about labels, I would identify very deeply with the label of minimalist. I am not, um, I don't like a lot of things. I've always, I was raised in a house that was very minimal, very frugal Um, and so I just don't like stuff. I have zero attachment to things whatsoever. But I live with a pack rat husband <sighs> and a toddler, and now a baby. And what toddler is not a pack rat? First of all, what toddler right. does not bring home an insane amount of trash into your into your house? Yeah, they just like stick so, things in
1: their pockets and walk around with it. Do. What is, they do. get these magnets,
2: rocks, <laughs> right? <Yeah>. Rocks, <laughs> um, and. I I tell this story all the time. My daughter used to collect leaves and she would put them in her underwear drawer and she called them her nature socks.
1: Oh my gosh. She would
2: get them out and she would want to like fake wear them all around the house. So there'd just be stuff everywhere.
1: Like little crumpled up pieces of leaves everywhere. Uh
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. It was was (laughs) insane. And for the longest time I would just grit my teeth through that. You know, I would tolerate it for the most part because it's creative and cute and whatever. But, um, but then there would be days I would just lose my mind. And I would be like, all of this stuff, you guys, get it out of my house. This has to go. there. There is too much stuff in here. I am so overwhelmed. And the kitchen counter alone was like, you know, Vegas. There was just stuff everywhere. <laughs> so um, so I think I was so – what, what be, became such an issue for me is I felt hypocritical, right? Because I, it, I, I was a minimalist. And here I was living in a house with so much stuff – stuff that I contributed to as well, because my job offers free things to review all the time. Right. So it would be me siphoning through and I would, and I would start to become ungrateful for that when in reality, who doesn't want to find the awesome new lotion that right. is amazing and life changing and you love it so much. Who doesn't love that stuff sent to their door? It's fun for a little bit. And so my struggle was was finding gratitude for that because I was so focused on what my life was supposed to look like because of who I thought I was supposed to be or who I actually was. Yeah. Truly, I am. I am someone that thrives in a less is more environment. But at the same time, I love my family more. So, right. so if I can stop being focused on what that looks like and stop apologizing for the state of my house when just because it doesn't completely 100% reflect who I am, right? Whatever. It's not. I'm here to to live and enjoy my life. I'm not here to rearrange it. I'm not here to rearrange my stuff and and to try to make it all match and to try to make it all make sense. It's, um, it's the accepting of your surroundings that I have learned more from than the changing of my surroundings. I love that. And,
1: and it, It totally speaks to what you said earlier about how we become flattened. I think that there's this real, even for people who aren't in, and I'm using air quotes here, in social media or in blogging um, as a job or even as a hobby, there's this sort of um, compulsion to sum ourselves up in, you know, like in a tagline <laughs> oh, yes. to say I am this kind of person or I'm that kind of person. And truthfully, sometimes I'm this kind of person one day and then a different kind of person the next day. I mean, I'm, uh, we're very complex and uh-huh. we don't fit in boxes, but we try to make ourselves and then we feel guilty or hypocritical or like we have to hide or we're, you know, sh- ashamed if we don't live in a way that always lives up to that. Whereas maybe we don't need to label label ourselves and other people in the first
2: place. Exactly. If we can all just say, oh yeah, I am a great many things. If we can just say that once a day, I mean, w- how much freedom is there? Because yeah. it's true. I feel like, and you're right. It's not about social media, not social media. It's about the age old dinner party question, which is what do you do for a living? Right. And you're either ashamed of that or proud of that. You know, you either cringe a little when you say it, or you feel like you have to over explain or under explain, or you make an excuse for it. Or it, it, I just... I feel like it's this emphasis on labeling and measuring every part of our life. And life is not to be measured. It's just not.
1: No, it's meant to be lived. So you mentioned there were, you mentioned part three of your book. So is it broken into three, three parts?
2: It is. Tell tell us about that. Well, so part one is, is kind of the chase to more. Part one was a lot of um, my, so Ken has a brain tumor. Have we talked about this? Um, I don't
1: don't remember talking about this. No. When did this happen?
2: When, before we were married, so it's, um, he's happy, he's healthy, he's thriving. That is not the point of this, but it is a little in that, um, he was, he was diagnosed, then we got married and I, we, I mean, to be honest, I did not think he was going to live. I called, um, I called it his little expiration date because it it was, um, the doctor said he wouldn't live to be 30. So we really just from the get go thought that this was a shortened marriage. And I think as a result, I just, I felt this weight and this pressure to make the most of it. Yeah, And so we chased everything, you know, he poured himself into work, I poured myself into purpose. I thought, um, you know, we had to make this life ultra meaningful, because it would be shorter. Yes. And uh, we had to do the same with our marriage. And so that so part one is really more the the chase and the hunt for fulfillment and um kind of to put a band-aid over that ambiguity over that like how much time you really have kind of thing and then at some point I just began to realize this more thing is not helping me like I cannot just throw more at the problem this is not going to go away yeah people aren't problems. They're not projects. I'm not here to fix anybody. I'm here to enjoy this time. And so then I kind of went the other way. And part two is a lot about um, stripping away the excess that we had accumulated and amassed. Um, both, I think, you know, emotionally and, and physically. You know, we went through a lot of life changes. We slowed mm-hmm. our lives tremendously. We reevaluated. We reassessed. We reprioritized. Uh, moved to the Midwest. You know, at the time we were living in Los Angeles and very fast life. And um, so part two is a lot about the slowing. And, and then part three is the releasing of the metric, you know, so it's, yeah. it's fast, 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 slow, slow, slow. And then whatever, guys, let's, let's try, <laughs> whatever. And <enjoy> this. Yeah. <laughs> try and enjoy this. Yeah. You
1: know, one thing that popped into my head when you were talking, and it's something that I think I've personally struggled with, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, um, is that I'm not someone who naturally can maintain a lot of close friendships. I like to have just the ones, you know, just enough. <laughs> and that, I think that number looks different for everybody. And I think part of the problem with social media is that it inflates the number of people that we're supposed, and this is going to sound terrible, that we're supposed to care about deeply. Oh, yeah. And I find that I have a natural point at which I can't care anymore about any more people. It's not that I don't care about people as a group. And I, of course, you know, I love people, but like there comes a point, like a tipping point where you almost can't maintain another human relationship. Um, oh, yeah. How do you yeah. deal? I mean, if if you're like the hermit in the woods, you probably have that even more intensely than me. So I'm wondering how you deal with that. Like, how can you be an open, caring person who loves people, um, but doesn't like fall into the hole of thinking you need to have 2000 best friends because they're your Facebook friends or whatever it looks like for you?
2: Well, I'm a big compartmentalizer. And I think, um, so I've got my home team, my inner circle, which is basically my, my family's tops, they come first. And then I have kind of like the second tier. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, people, it, for someone that hates labels, I, I very much, you know, I, I like to have them orderly and tidy. And, and I'm also one of those weird people. I don't mix friends and family. Like I'm, I'm so that's a therapy session for another day, but I'm a big, <laughs> I'm a big compartmentalizer. Um, and what I do it's, I, I just don't, um, I think, I think because I'm exactly the same as you are in that I become very emotionally invested
1: mm-hmm.
2: in, pe- I'm, I'm, I, in people. And I do, you reach your tolerance level very quickly and you reach your like max social level and care level. And so I just don't really, this sounds terrible, but I don't care about people that I'm not with.
1: Right. If there's okay. somebody
2: on the other side of the phone that is, you know, living their life in Minnesota or whatever, I don't actually really care about what's like happening on your side. I'm happy to reach out if there's something that you need help with. But I'm such an in-person person. person. I I feel like I'm such, uh, just a naturally very present person that um, I can't physically put myself
1: in In your scenario yeah yeah uh
2: if if you're not sitting in front of me and we're having an actual conversation
1: yeah and that I think that makes sense I mean it sounds when you say it that way and um I mean like if (laughs) I said it that way I'd be like the whole time thinking this sounds terrible this sounds so (laughs) you know cold but it's not it's it's self-protection but the good kind it's like putting on your own you know the old adage about putting on your own oxygen mask (laughs) you have to keep you have to keep you have to make it work for you in a way that it works for you or it won't work And you see people who were the wear themselves out by caring too much about too many people in a way that isn't sustainable.
2: Well, and I think too, that's the danger of, um, of this massive amount of information at our fingertips is I've read before that you can really only process like for information to stick, you have to experience it with more than three senses. Wow. So you have to have, you know, the sight, the sound, the touch, um, the feel, you know, whatever that is, the taste for some, and we only have two senses available online sight and sound. And so, right. it, I mean, there's touching the keyboard, but that doesn't count. So there's really a wall that we, nothing can can really get in past for it to deeply a hundred percent affect us. It's not true across the board, but I feel like it's definitely true for me. And that if, if I'm not sitting across from a table with you and being physically able to help, you know, yeah. I, can, I can share kind words and I can yeah. tell a story and that that's great too. But, um, I do. I feel like it's almost a protective barrier. And I know that, um, I, I am not going to understand your issues on a local level because we're not actual friends.
1: Right. Right. Yeah.
2: Which it sounds mean. Yeah, it does. But I don't get the context of you. It's, I would never, you know, the, the, not to make it political, but the rice crisis in Haiti, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going we went over to Haiti and offered a bunch of rice and killed all the rice farmer businesses and all the crops because we tried to help a problem we didn't understand. Yeah. And we weren't there on a local level and we weren't there in person. So I'm just a big believer in... Being on the ground, dirty, fully present, a hundred percent with the people that you're actually with, and then the rest can kind of fill in the blanks when when you have that emotional capacity available to you. But it doesn't work the other way around.
1: Yeah, I totally agree, and that's um, that's also a good example of you know now there's so many things you can care about that cross your path. You you don't we don't even have time to fully understand the things we're supposed to get sad about or um, yeah. feel anxious about or feel touched by or feel outraged by, we don't even understand those things. We're just supposed to have an immediate emotional reaction. Like, here's here's a picture, feel. <laughs> here's a headline, <laughs> act, uh-huh. be outraged. And I need a lot more processing time. But I'd never thought about the fact that I need more information. It's not just more time. And it's not just more data. I need exactly because there's a million things in the world, probably a billion things in the world I could feel really badly about or really convicted by if I wanted to or if I had all that information. But how much more effective am I if I just dig in deep on one thing? And that's all I worry about. Yes. And it's context. Yeah. And
2: I think it's it's about, you know, we're we're spread so thin just in terms of um, how many times a day are we asked to hit the donut donate now button to another cause right um which is a beautiful and wonderful and i'm so i feel so grateful that we have so many different avenues to be able to help other people i also feel like it's our responsibility to do our research and to and to look for the context in those scenarios and to sometimes sometimes it requires a lot more than the donate now button and sometimes the donate now button can do a little more hurt than good
1: That is very true. Um, I feel like I just derailed us a little bit, but actually that was a very, uh, that was valuable little sidetrack for me. So thank you for, thank you for indulging me, Erin, for listeners, for indulging Uh, me, us. Um, I always get on tangents. (laughs) Me too. Um, I wanted, before we wrap up, I definitely wanted to talk about your new baby and more, a little more about the book and where you can get it. So tell me first about your, your adoption story.
2: Oh my gosh. I mean, I know you don't
1: have to get all the way into it. And actually there's a great blog post, circling around that you wrote that we can link to in the show notes as well but tell us what you know what you think you you. can today
2: yeah you know he was a surprise baby and that um we had just literally just finished the well we actually weren't even all the way done with our education hours or anything but we had just finished the paperwork and um this is a this is a rare adoption story I feel like it's um it's always hard to tell a story because it's there's so much grief and loss involved Mm, yeah and across the board. And a lot of people are waiting a really, really long time for babies. And there's some emotional turmoil. Ours was, uh, tumultuous for different reasons, but we, uh, we just had just turned in our paperwork and, um, uh, Willow was, my daughter B was in the bathtub and she was, um, we just got a phone call like from the agency, which is totally normal. Uh, we thought that they were asking about paperwork and, they were like, hey, we have a match. And you know, when the first call you get from an agency is usually you're asked to meet with the birth mother and then you go through a process of meeting a few times and everybody kind of lands on, yes, this is gonna, this is a good match. Sometimes the birth mother will meet with five, 10 families before they choose. And even then, a lot of times there's a disruption in the adoption. Birth mother might change her mind. And so we had set ourselves up for the adoption agency recommended timeline, which was about two to four years for our scenario. It was a domestic adoption, um, but we had set ourselves up for a long wait. And so when they called and said we had a match, we were thinking, okay, well... um, what's their schedule look like next week to maybe meet with the birth mother. And they're like, no, 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 no. The baby's here. Like, oh no. <laughs> he's like, I mean, oh yeah, but oh what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, he's, he's, you know, at a hospital just waiting for you. No parents, uh, birth mother has signed out. So it, it was kind of a safe haven baby drop off scenario. Um, and yeah, that very, private and um incredibly fast sudden wow so you go from
1: thinking at some point we might maybe adopt a baby to to, here's the
2: baby uh uh-huh yes it was so fast so we all piled in the car and um and met our baby it was just it was wow yeah (laughs) it was really fast very crazy um and then we got to bring him home the next day it was a high legal risk so there was a lot of um you know, red tape, a lot of waiting, a lot of yeah. uh, legal stuff. But oh my gosh, he's the sweetest, um, and so oh God, he's just—it's the best. You know, babies are <laughs> best. I
1: I I love, and he's six months old now.
2: Yes. Oh,
1: that's a great age. That's like my favorite. My favorite it is.
2: age. It is a great age. Oh they my can gosh. kind of
1: start looking. You know, they have a personality, but they can't do too much yet. They can't really get in trouble yet. So
2: I know they can't yeah. get away from you, right? And, and my first was so independent and um, just. She was just. She was a hard, independent, very um, opinionated baby. She's exactly my husband, and. This one, man, he is just like go with the flow, and he's. Yeah. I, I hear it's a boy girl thing, or maybe it's just a first baby. No, in my experience. in
1: my experience, it's just different babies. I, you know, and yeah. when you have one that's that's difficult like that, and then you get the next one, and they're like laid back. It's almost like they're even more laid. You can't believe how laid back they are.
2: <laughs> so. I know. Yeah. I, it's crazy. I do. I, I always joke with my husband and daughter that like, finally, gosh, there's somebody on my team here. Like there's yeah. another laid back, chill person in the family. I'm so excited. Yeah. So yeah, he's, he's, he's a great,
1: Oh, that's so great. What a great story. And we'll, we'll um, definitely link to that in the show notes. Um, well, I, before we wrap up, Erin, I'm so glad to, to catch up with you and talk with you. Now I'm going to Twitter with you. So be prepared because I'm going to hit you up. Um, but I want to make sure that everyone knows um, the book came out last month and it's Chasing Home and remind me the tagline again. Full title. Chasing Slow. Chasing,
2: Chasing Slow, I me mean. Off the beaten path.
1: Okay, do that again because I was talking over you.
2: Oh, you're fine. Chasing Slow, Courage to Journey Off the Beaten Path. And can someone
1: just go to designformankind.com if they want to find out more about the book? Or is there a special
2: site for the book? Yep. Um, There's a site, designformankind.com slash chasing slow. Chasing slow. Okay. There's like a hashtag on Instagram. You can just go to chasing slow. You can um, Google it. It's on Amazon. Anywhere books are sold.
1: Anywhere books are sold, which is pretty much, you know, everywhere. So definitely check it out. It's been so great talking with you. And I look forward to um, watching where things go with you in the future.
2: Yay. Thank you for having me, Megan.
1: Thanks again for listening to this special bonus episode, episode nine of The Mom Hour. Um, keep in mind, we do these interviews every now and then, just about monthly right now. So if you want to find more interviews, you can always go to themomhour.com and just go through our archives. Uh, we've got some great stuff in there, and it's something we're hoping to bring you more of. Again, we always love hearing from you. So if you're really enjoying these interviews, please send us a note hello at themomhour.com or drop us a comment um, at themomhour.com. You can also leave a rating or review. We really love it when you do that. It helps us us out a lot. And it lets us know that you're enjoying the show. So thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Mom Hour with special guest Erin Lochner. And we'll see you next week.
0: Guess what, Megan, over 10,000 teens are already using our sponsor, Erica, to help them unplug.
1: That is amazing.
0: Tell your teens about Erica and save 20% on the Erica family plan with promo code theMomHour. Go to erica.app and search for plans. That's Erica with a K E R I K A dot A P P and use code theMomHour to save 20%.
1: Sarah, I started a Substack last spring, just kind of as an experiment, and it turns out I love it. I'm treating it kind of like an old school blog, writing about things that are happening in my life.
0: Megan, I've loved following your stuff on Substack, and I actually just really like Substack in general.
1: You know, we've both been a lot less active on Instagram lately, and I'm finding that Substack scratches that itch to connect and create without all the busyness of a typical social media feed. So I would love it if Mom or listeners wanted to look me up there. I'm at meganfrancis.substack.com, and that's Megan with two A's, francis.substack.com.